Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. This little letter, church, I believe offers us kind of a center of gravity, an anchor, as it were, for Christians and for churches to grow up in the faith. It's written to this small church in a small town in the first century that's young. They have not even been graced by the appearance of an apostle in their little town. Paul, as he's writing, has never even been there. But his message of Jesus has gone there ahead of him. And now he, as sort of the apostle and coach, is speaking words of encouragement and directions for how the church can continue to grow up in this good news. Right? Colossians sparkles sort of page by page with this kind of clear and cosmic picture of Jesus and how great he is and how significant he is in a way that kind of answers some of the questions of skeptics, and also encourages those of you who are the saints. It does so in a way that says, Christ is all. That's actually one of the sentences in the middle of the book. Christ is all, everything that you need, and everything the church needs in order to grow from infancy to maturity. Maturity is the key word, how a church grows up, and how Christians grow up. You see, in Christ, what the Apostle Paul says is that we have this rescue from darkness. We have freedom and forgiveness. We have this transfer into God's family. We have power and knowledge. There's wisdom and grace and truth offered to us in Jesus. And this massive message of hope landed on a small town called Colossae and started to change it. In fact, this is the very sea. If you look over those mountains, this is a real photo, Colossae is somewhere there. This is the Mediterranean. It's the area where the Apostle Paul traveled in and around on all of his missionary journeys. We don't know exactly where this ancient city was, but it settled somewhere beyond the mountains there. And what you have is this story in the New Testament of a man, actually many, who were traveling around sharing the good news of Jesus. This is a map of the known world. At that point, you can see the names are different than we would sort of categorize nations and countries now. But the red line is this crazy trip that Paul makes, traveling from town to town, meeting people, and telling them about Jesus. And as he tells people about Jesus, what happens is people believe. Many reject, but always people receive this claim that Jesus is the Lord, the king of all creation, the king of all redemption. And then all of a sudden they start to come together and learn how to live life as if that is true because for them it has become true. It's become ultimate reality. And so in the first sort of pages of this letter, as it were, here's the flow. You have the, the apostle writing again to this church. And the reason he's able to write to them is because someone from the church has come back to him, told him this report of all that God was doing in the city there. And so they praise God for the report of what's going on in the city. 
And then not only do they say prayers of thanksgiving, but he details out what he's specifically praying for the church so that it would continue to grow in the faith. And after praying for their specific encouragement, nurture, and growth, he starts listing these reasons for thanksgiving. The first of which is the new kingdom that they're a part of. They've been transferred into this new place, the place where God rules and reigns. And and then also along with that place, they've come under a new king, the Lord Jesus himself. And it's already started to produce a new Colossae, a changing and transforming city. And so this morning, what I want to do is pick up that story where we left off. We we looked last week or a couple weeks ago at the new kingdom, what it means for someone to be transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And then last week, we looked at the king himself. Who is this king of all creation? And this morning, we're going to look at part two. He's not just the king of creation, but he's the king of redemption. So let's um, pick up that verse in in verse 15 where we left off. And what I want to show you this morning as sort of a roadmap is that there is a story of redemption. There is laid out here in this song the scope of redemption. And then I believe what's hinted at here in the end is the scandal of redemption. So if you're a note taker or you just need to know where we're headed, we're going to the story of redemption, the scope of redemption, and the scandal of redemption. Ready? Let's go. Here we are in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Creation's interesting, isn't it? Thinking about like where do we come from and where does the world come from? My daughter in school right now is listening to stories of ancient history. Uh, you know, so from the most ancient and basic civilizations all the way on up to the Greco-Roman world, she's kind of trying to wrap her mind around for the first time that there's been people that have existed long before her and what their civilizations and cultures were like. And so there's, you know, books that she's reading and there's also some songs that we learn and, and a bit of a timeline of events that are going on in the world at that time. And As we're riding in the car, where some of this plays on um, the speakers, we've got a little recording of it, I'm noticing, okay, here's the timeline events, and it's describing this people and that people and where they lived and what they believed and how they functioned. And and I almost stopped for a second to go, okay, I'm going to hit pause. I turn around and say, hey, babe, what do you think about what you're hearing? And so we start talking. She's in the back seat. I'm in the front seat. And we're talking about history as we drive down the freeway. And um, there's nothing more fascinating. I don't think uh, there's plenty. But but the ancient world to a kid, it's like, it's so exhilarating. Like, I mean, everything from like the different like wardrobes or like the battles, like it's just like a whole fantasy world for her. That's actually been the real world. And as they were describing this people and what they believed, I said, hey, that's really different from kind of what we think about the start of the world and the story of the world, isn't it? And she goes, yeah, dad, that's way different. Like, in the gods they believed in were different too. And in that moment, I'm going, oh, story, right? And not just ancient story, but I've realized more and more that present history is full of different explanations for the story of the world. Where we come from, where we're going, who's in charge, 
and how things work. And what you have here in this incredible hymn is the story of the world. It starts with creation. Did you see it? He is this firstborn, which of course we learned last week is the the term for someone who's the owner, the inheritor, the one in charge of all things in the estate. He's the owner of creation, the firstborn. But as we'll see later on today, he's also the firstborn from among the dead. He's the firstborn to come back to life, meaning not just in terms of the original creation, but Jesus, who's spoken of here, is actually the first one in recreation or in redemption, the first one to come back from death to life and to have a new glorious body that is the initial stamp that all things will start again and be returned to the glorious garden that they began in. We have a story in the scriptures that includes creation, the fall of mankind into the sin, brokenness, and fragmentation we experience, a redemption where God himself looked at the mess he didn't make, but stepped in with compassion and grace in the person of Jesus, living perfectly as we should live, dying sacrificially like we deserve to die, and then rising in victory. And then that victory stamping there is not the end of the story, but the beginning of the restoration of all things. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation is the Christian story. This week, um, in my gospel community, which is our, our small group. Um, we call them gospel communities because we want them to be centered on the gospel, right? We want that to be the conversation topic, how the gospel affects our lives. And uh, we talked about COVID. We talked about Russia. We talked about the Olympics. We talked about lots of other things. Um, but we also had Colossians as a foundation and the gospel as sort of our press and application. And one of the people in our group asked a brilliant question. So we're reading through this. They go, hey, why does it say that all things were created for him? Like, how can everything be for him? I mean, it's pretty clear that a lot of things are not for him. And someone else in the group goes, well, yeah, I think that's because even though everything was created for him, not everything now lives for him. There has been a fall from that original design where we were made to live and find our purpose in the creator, to live for him. But now we live in a fallen world, a broken world. And you see the story piecing together, even here in this song. But how does everything exist for him? Well, it exists initially for him. And now it doesn't in many ways because you and I fail to live for him day by day at times. And we look at our world and say, hey, in the end, things will bring about his glory. But right now, it looks very, very gruesome at times. The story is still in the middle. I wonder if somebody heard you were here this morning on Tuesday this week, or a neighbor caught wind that you attended a church, and they asked, Hey, so what do Christians really believe anyway? How would you answer? Now, you might be tempted to assert some sort of moral stances that Christians have, 
Or perhaps maybe there's a certain set of political convictions you might quickly want to lay out. Now, the interesting thing about that is Jesus was sort of like pretty much not aligned with all the moralists of his day because he had all of these really broken people start to flock around him. He definitely was a holy man, but he seemed to welcome unholy people into his presence. And then also the, the political figures of his day, they couldn't quite pin him down. He just seemed to be evading all of them. And the only way they were able to pin him was actually on a cross, which they did pin him to. But I wonder if you would answer the question in terms of story. Well, really what Christians believe is the story of a world that was made and created as God's kingdom, but that people had gone their own way rebelling against his rule, and in their rebellion had only gravitated towards their own destruction by choosing their own way, by thinking their own thoughts, by disregarding his laws. And it was so bad that he had to step in and rescue them. But the rescue was not enough because he couldn't leave things as they were. He rescued and then also promised a full restoration of things back to the way that he designed. Could you tell a story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation? This is the story that Christians believe. See, this hymn invites us to see the story of redemption, but not just to see it, to receive it. Because to see is not the same thing as to embrace and to receive. When you begin to embrace and receive the story of God's new kingdom, the story of redemption that's come, right, it, it changes things dramatically. I love the way um, author Paul Tripp puts it. He says, we're created by God to be meaning makers. Right? We never leave our lives alone. We pick them up all the time, trying to make sense of the civilization they, they comprise. We do forensic investigations of our past, like archaeology, leafing through our present, and we try our best to figure out the future. We're people of story. But what changes when you receive the story of redemption? Well, you begin to see Jesus for the king of redemption that he is. He is the author, the king of all redemption. And without him, there is no kingdom. Without the king, there cannot be any kind of new kingdom, new creation, new redemption coming our way. Let me say it another way. When you begin to receive the story of redemption, you start to embrace that Jesus is king forever. Jesus wasn't just a king in the past or some figure in history, but nor is he only a figure in your past, perhaps meeting you in a previous time of life. But Jesus is ever-present, ruling now and holding all things together so that they don't fragment even worse, and then bringing about the whole renewal of everything. Jesus is past and present and future. The, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you receive Jesus as the king of redemption, it means you have a future and you also have a king in the present. And that changes how you see things because it means that you will never move beyond him. 
You, you will never get past the alpha and the omega. You will never grow past him, learning to some kind of new higher knowledge. He is the one whom you need. He is sufficient in the source of all that you long for, right? You begin to increasingly see your own story in light of his story when you receive him as the king of redemption. And here's what that means. There are going to be moments where repentance is needed for you because you'll start living another story. And the stories that get spun in our time capture your mind and they capture your heart in such a way where you go, hey, I actually need to reorient and pivot back to this story of the world because I've begun to live in light of another. And that happens once and for all, by the, by, the, by the way, friends. If it has not happened in your life, I'm praying that it happens even this morning, where you come to terms that there is a story of the world and there is a creator and a redeemer. But not only does it happen once, it happens on repeat. It happens first for you to become a Christian, and it happens often for you to grow as a Christian. It is the source not only of your rebirth in Christ, but also of your renewal and growth, not just your infancy, but the path to your maturity. When you begin to live as if Jesus is king forever, and your story is tied to his story of redemption. Okay, so not just the story of redemption. Let's talk about the scope of redemption, the scope of redemption. This hymn helps you see the scope of redemption. Just, just look at it as we read through this here. I want to go verse by verse. Let's pick up in verse 17 because we read the beginning. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things. Notice the repetition. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, same word as all, he might be preeminent, supreme, first, above, beyond everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether in he on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is concerned here eight times in the span of these sentences to help you see that Jesus and the scope of who he is and what he's done is all, everything. Everything you see in creation, him. And everything you will see in redemption, him. Everything comes from him. Everything will go through him. Everything will work to him. He is in scope preeminent, according to the translation we're reading from. Nothing bigger, nothing greater, nothing higher. He is all. You can see it in that phrasing of, in, in both of the passages, in both of these verses, the beginning of this section, the end of the section, here's the middle, right? He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. This we said last week is sort of like the bridge. Like this is the thing you ramp on, repeat if you're the Colossae church, right? You, you, you want to say over and over again, he, things hold together in him. 
the church holds together in him. But also the parallel phrasing is really instructive. Because you see, in him, all things were created. In him, all things will find redemption. Through him, and then even reconciliation ties that last one to him. This phrasing is at the beginning and the end. And then also you see the, the, the other parallel of on earth or in heaven. Things visible and invisible. The beginning of the passage, the end of the passage. Everything is in view here for Jesus. Nothing outside of the scope of his creative power. You look into the stars, you look into the molecules and the microscope, everything came from him. And anything that will be redeemed will be redeemed by him. There's no need to look elsewhere. There's no need to look further. He, in his scope of redemption, is complete and comprehensive. Now, here's what that means. It means that the scope of redemption includes the individual. Yes, you matter as an individual sitting here. There are individual seats here, right? But we are... And that matters. Like what you do with your life, how you respond to the good news of Jesus, if you find your personal story in light of God's great story, the individual matters. You will experience greater wholeness and transformation in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, in your strength and action if you believe in Jesus and walk in his ways. You as an individual matter. You're within the scope of redemption. But redemption in scope is also collective. He is redeeming a people, right? Not just individual seats, but a church. He's redeeming a collective nation. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will become part of one holy nation. He's not after just individuals, but he's literally saving for himself a people and making for himself a kingdom. Redemption is collective. It does not include everyone, but it does include a group, meaning it's not just about you. And then redemption is cosmic. I mean, this passage presses us because it talks about redemption in ways that we don't like, like things visible and invisible, things on heaven and on earth. Wait a minute, I thought it was about me and my relationship with Jesus. Yes, but Jesus is literally going to recreate everything that exists back to its design and intention. Our story does not end at the cross, nor does it have some sort of weird picture in the clouds where we float around. It ends in the remaking of all things after God's design and intention. The story's full, complete. And God wants you swept up in it. Cosmic redemption is in the hand of Jesus, our king of redemption. So what happens when you receive Jesus as the king of redemption? Well, King Jesus is first then. King Jesus is first, meaning if he's preeminent, then he's got to be primary. Like he's got to be first in your mind. He's got to be first in your heart. He's got to be first with your time. Jesus is primary, preeminent, 
above all. And, and, and here's what that means very practically. The helpful question for a Christian is always, where do I need to put Jesus first? Or better yet, where have I put Jesus second? Is there something in my life where Jesus has eclipsed center stage in my heart, in my mind? Where has Jesus played second fiddle in my schedule, with my finances, in my relationships? Part of receiving this great king of redemption is to say, I'm going to do that messy work to try and put him first because I know how easy it is for me to slide him second. And even though he is the king of all redemption, I have a habit of putting other things on the throne, the place where he alone should sit. This, again, is what happens when someone first believes. They come to reckon with he is who he says he is, and he should be first, and he's never been first for me. But it also is the path to ongoing change for the Christian. Meaning the same conversation that you, if you're a Christian, need to have on a Thursday night in a gospel community. And the same conversation that someone who's wrestling with and exploring the faith needs to have is about how, am I, how could I put Jesus first? What would it mean for me to believe he's preeminent? That's the same wrestle for you as it is for them. Maybe someone who's still exploring the faith, and if that's you here now, you're going, hey, I don't know if I want to put Jesus first. And that's the conversation. But come on, Christians. How many times have you said, I'm not sure I want to put Jesus first? Because I love what else is center stage right now. We all need the good news of the king of redemption worked into our lives such that we might grow up in the faith from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. So the story, the scope, let's talk about the scandal. We've got to make our way to the end of these verses because I can't preach another week on just a couple verses. You know, we've got to make our way through the letter. Um, but let's go. Here it is. For in him, verse 19, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's scandal written all over this. Because somehow, God has placed the fullness of himself into a human form. Try and share that story with your coworker this week. That, that God, the maker, the creator of all things, chose that the world was such a mess that the only thing that would do would be for him to come. In the form of a baby, by the way. And then grow up in a life, a perfect human life, in the first century. And then at the proper time, begin to do public ministry leading thousands upon thousands to hopefully not leave the building. But, but to believe that he was the one whom they should set their hope on. He came with the message of a new kingdom. And then it became very clear that he was the king of the kingdom. And then to prove the point, 
He overthrew all of the system, going, being nailed to the cross by the religious authority and the governing body of the day, and then dying in, for three days and then rising in victory. That's our story. And there's a scandal to it that God would somehow come into our mess, that the holy would come into the unholy, that the righteous would come and dwell with the wicked. Like there is something that doesn't fit there, but it's something that we long for. For the living God to meet us where we are and how we are and all our brokenness. Not to leave us there, but to heal us to change us, to renew us, so that we, in the words of Colossians, might be renewed after the image, the likeness of our creator. That we might become like him, how we were supposed to be in the beginning. There's scandal there, that God would become flesh, and that in Jesus of Nazareth, the fullness of God would dwell. Fullness means that you don't got to look anywhere else, by the way. Sufficient, complete, overflowing, all of God is there. But that's not the only scandal here. The scandal of the last phrase in these verses is, is perhaps even more so. And through him, that's Jesus, the one who became man, fully God and fully man, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. What you have here is the true scandal of the gospel. That Jesus not, entered, not just entered into a broken world, but a warring world. He entered into a world in conflict. In fact, a world in rebellion against his rightful rule over all creation. The Christian story is one where Jesus, the rightful king, gets thrown out of his own kingdom only to say, yeah, the kingdom that was, I don't want. I want one that's new that I'm going to bring. Jesus is the king who has come and made peace with his enemies. That's the gospel message, that you and I, in our own sin, in our own folly, in our own doing our own thing, are actually in rebellion against the king, and he has come with love for his enemies. And not just love, but a kind of love that sacrifice, giving his whole self being pinned to that cross. That's the scandal. That blood would make for peace. But then again, this is the very core of the gospel that you can see all the way through the scriptures. Because wasn't it that by judgment with Noah, salvation also came. Wasn't it by judgment in Egypt upon the firstborn that deliverance also came? Wasn't it by judgment on Israel that a remnant also came? The very core of the gospel is that salvation comes through judgment, but the shocking scandal of it is that the judgment was laid on him, not on us, that his blood flowed making peace for his enemies. That's me, and that's you. And this is why 
true growth in the Christian life will never come by your mustard obedience. It will never come by you dogged, trying harder, clenching fists, gritting teeth, working for betterness. It will come as you're united to him because he brings a fullness and a peace that you need to grow. It is not just by your effort, but it is by his grace that you are saved, and it is by his grace that you are sanctified. The way in which you grow up is through faith in him, expressing itself in action in your life. We don't move on from him. We always go through him. We don't get to maturity by our own efforts. We get to maturity by faith working itself out in our lives. Faith in the one who's the king of redemption. The one who by the scandal of the cross has made peace for you and me. And that's a truth that does not sit out here sort of in the clouds, but has to land first and foremost in our lives. Which means... We have to relentlessly ask, do we see Jesus as the fullness? Is there something we add to him? Do we move beyond him? Or does all of our life flow through him? Even our growth flow through him? Because he is the king of redemption. And I promise you, there is no redeeming without a redeemer. There is no rescue without the rescuer, and there is no kingdom without the king, who is the king of creation and the king of redemption and the one whom you and I need, not just once, but day by day, in the past, in the present, and forever. The one who should be first, the one who is the fullness, and the one who is ours by faith. So church, receive him by faith.